Good evening. I left my humility outside. I'll go get it before we're through. When your committee offered the invitation and uh, asked me to come down here and uh, speak at this conference, my first reaction was, uh, yeah, I'd like to go, but. And the but's real simple. So many of you people have heard me so often, and you know me so well, that uh, you'd be better off me getting down there and you telling my story. It's almost that bad. And so uh, I guess to you people that have heard this uh, effort that's been going on for all these years, uh, I'll give you a chance to exercise your tolerance, and perhaps you can enhance your spiritual condition of nothing else tonight. So uh, give yourself a chance. I uh, I say that in all sincerity because the farther I get from home, the better off I am. And some of you people are here from my own group, and that's a hell of a thing because i got to be honest tonight. And that kind of takes the bloom off the flower for me. But uh, nevertheless, uh, I'm glad to be here. And uh, I have an opportunity and have uh, to visit with a lot of you that I know intimately and some of you I know casually. But it's always one of the great benefits in AA is to keep alive these these relationships that we have. We have this opportunity to uh, to uh, to meet and to become part of a kind of a relationship and a fellowship and enduring friendships that uh, are hard to uh, they're hard to even uh, relate. But you carry them with you for all these years, and I, no matter where I am. There are those people that I carry with me, and uh, I hope that when I see you that uh, this sharing of our love and experience is indeed a great, great uh, benefit uh, of this beautiful fellowship. Now, uh, if you will, my name is Paul Keebler, and I'm an alcoholic. I say that with my interpretation of the traditions. I give you my dry date, and I'm beginning my 44th year as of yesterday in this beautiful fellowship. Now, here's where my humility starts. My wife has been in this thing 45 years, so, oh boy. The old adage, never marry a woman that's been in this thing longer than you have. My God, it ain't no future in it. And, uh... So uh, I have that cross to bear. But she's not only my wife, but a self-appointed uh, advisor, counselor, and uh, policeman. And uh, I have a hell of a time with her. She uh, manipulates me pretty good. And uh, I don't catch up with it until it's too late. And when I say manipulates, it brings to mind the story of the... Uh, Mississippi bus driver that picked the kids up to take them to to school, an integrated school. And before he got halfway there, the white kids and the black kids were fighting. He stopped the bus, said, all you kids off the bus. Want the white kids over here and the black kids over here. He said, you kids, the government has passed a law, the United States government. There are no black and no white people. We're all one color. And he said, I want you white kids to yell loud and clear. I am not white, I am green. And they did. And he said, I want all you black kids to yell loud and clear. I am not black, I am green. He said, okay. All you green kids get on the bus. I want the dark greens in the back. <laughs> <laughs> and that, 
And that's the way it is in my house. I'm the dark green one. And uh, it ain't a bad deal. I, I wouldn't change it for the world. I uh, find myself at this particular time, as of this moment, some 43 years plus ago, I was walking the streets in a state of hallucinating. I was in, uh, sick physically and mentally. And as uh, my friend Sutton said, the hand of AA uh, was there to uh, take me into this beautiful fellowship and recovery. And also, there has been other times in these last some four or five years that have gave me cause for and pause for consideration. And that is our new, I say new, the development that we now have some 50 years of hope and experience in this, uh, in this new way of life that we have. And so we have a lot of numbers. At 12 steps, 12 traditions, 12 promises, we have 12 concepts, we have now 50 years and I think that if I could, and you will indulge me, I'd like to reach back a little this evening. And I believe that this is the time of the year, at least for me, that if I'm going into the holidays to enjoy this, this beautiful thing that we had, this reprieve from this awful disease of alcoholism, that I could have a better appreciation of those things that are to come if I look back to see where I came from. And with your indulgence tonight, I'd like to take you on a little trip uh, back, I hope, to where I think we came from, and possibly you too can have this overwhelming, this, this beautiful feeling that we have of appreciation for those people who went before us that gave us the gift of the second life and sobriety. And uh, if you don't mind, I would like to lead, uh, read something to you that I just cherish, and I somehow, this comes to mean more and more to me as time goes on. And it is the page of the preface of the pioneers. It says, The Pioneers of AA. Dr. Bob and the 12 men and women who tell their stories were among the early members of the AA's first group. All have now passed away of natural causes, having maintained complete sobriety. The periods of sobriety attained by these 13 AA's range from 15 to 46 years. Today, hundreds, hundreds of additional AA members can be found who have had no relapse for more than 30 years. All of these, then, are the pioneers of AA. They bear witness that release from alcoholism can really be permanent. And I think that that is the thing that I would like to address myself this evening to the fact that this thing does work. There are living examples that this thing can be permanent. Now, all this conference, there has been speakers beginning with Marina and the rest of them, and uh, 
This afternoon we heard a beautiful talk with uh, our friend from Memphis. And there seems to be a little, uh, uh, let's call it a spiritual momentum building. And I feel that this evening, that, uh, that I'm sure that all of us at this conference can leave here reinforced with the knowledge that this thing does work, not only for those who we haven't met yet, but for those who are here. And for that, we are very grateful. And I certainly am grateful for it. Now, in putting this thing into its proper context, or let's say into the uh, uh, stage that I would like to have you take this trip, I'm going to see if I can't, in your mind's eye, transport you back to Cleveland or to Akron as it was some 45 years ago. And at that particular time, there would be, at, if I was at the podium, we called them leaders, not speakers, there would be in back of me a big sign, and the sign would say, but for the grace of God. And in the front, there would be four placards, the absolutes of love, unselfishness, purity, and honesty. Now, before you allow that word absolute to scare you and frighten you, let me say this that before we had 12 steps, we had six steps. And before we had six, we had four. And before we had four, we had the four absolutes. And these were the spiritual concepts that were discovered that could be addressed to and used for mental aberrations and these things that happened that the alcoholic, as we know it today, have been able to internalize and implement and to get this beautiful gift of sobriety. And I think the first first time that we were ever concerned with, or let's say at that particular time that these concepts were discovered, and without embellishing this, there was a young man in, in New York that I think was the begin, who began this, this, this series of events that, can, that continued on in today to make it possible for us to be here. And I'm going to call him Roland H. He came from a very wealthy family and socially elite. And this kid was a hell of an alcoholic. He was completely unmanageable, and he just could not find any way to handle himself. And he was, went all over the world trying to find relief and couldn't find it. And he heard about a great doctor with world-renowned, Dr. Young over in Switzerland. And so he made arrangements to go over to see the doctor to, to do something about this problem of, of alcoholism, and the doctor put him into psychotherapy or treatment, and he was there for a year. During this time, he was given all kinds of information. He recovered physically and mentally, and he left there with high hopes, like thousands of others, that he was now cured. And he got back to New York, and within a matter of weeks, he was not only back drunk, but he was worse off than the day he went over and he was the first one that told us that this thing was progressive, and we found that out through his efforts. And he was told, totally discouraged, and he went back to see the doctor, and he said, what the hell is going on here? You're the greatest in the world, and if you can't, what can I do about this? And this, I think, is probably a point in time where I believe that science, the integrity of this beautiful man, came out and put us on this road to recovery when he looked at this young man and he said, Roland, medical science can't help you. Psychiatry cannot help you. There is nothing we can do. You are one of those people 
who have equated their alcoholism with a need for oneness. A need for oneness. You are in need of a spiritual regeneration, a spiritual awakening. You must find a path to a higher understanding. Without that, there is no recovery. And so this young man left. And just think of this. Here was this world-renowned doctor. The integrity, the love of this man is just unbelievable. And so I think he endorsed our first that we knew about in the early days, that alcoholism was a physical addiction, that the compulsion took over our sanity and we could not function. And he went back to New York, and fortunately he fell in with the Oxford Fellowship, not the Oxford Movement. This was a spinoff of the Oxford uh, Movement of some people who had banded together to see if they couldn't use these spiritual concepts of, un of the four absolutes in addressing mental aberrations and this disease of alcoholism. Now, they were not concerned with alcoholism per se, but they had in this group some alcoholics. And it was there that, that our friend Roland, and I think the record says that he underwent a spiritual regeneration, and he acquired some sobriety. And as Black Cat said this afternoon, he took it to Abby Thresher, who was one of his schoolmates. And Abby fell in love with the idea and underwent this spiritual awakening. And he found that sobriety was, was attainable with these concepts, and he took it to Bill. Now, Bill Wilson grabbed this thing, and he found that it was a good thing. And Abby said to him, Bill, I have had a religious experience. I no longer have to drink. And so Bill grabbed this thing, and away he went. Now, I'm not going to take you on a long, long trip, all of which you are familiar with. When Bill left there and went to Akron for this uh, effort that he was going to make in his business activities to, re to get himself uh, straightened out. But when he got there, and I'm going to say this because I think it's so interesting, he was given seven or eight names to call to get in touch with people in the Oxford Fellowship. And he called and he called and he called and he couldn't find anything. The last call he made was to a minister who put him in touch with Henrietta Cyberling, who got in touch with Ann, who got in touch with Bob and cleaned him up and said, Bob, we got a man from New York who wants to talk to you about alcoholism. And about the last thing in the world that Bob wanted to do was to talk to some broken down investment broker from New York. And uh, nevertheless, he agreed to do it. And so they had their historical meeting. Now, I think the amazing thing about this is that both of these people, Bob had been in the Oxford Fellowship and had been privy to and had had all of this information about these spiritual concepts. Bill had no real information about the spiritual concepts except the activity. And so we have, for the first time, I think, in the history of our fellowship, a the ingredients that were put together that work to our final benefit, and that is working with other alcoholics but embracing these spiritual concepts. And we put into motion this act of love which has been going on and on and on and on. And what a beautiful, beautiful thing this is. Now, there have been plenty of times and experiences by other people who wanted to get into these, these activities. They'd all fallen on their face because they didn't have any spiritual concepts. But here was the first time that spiritual concepts had been used in addressing this problem. And it worked. 
Now, I think I'm going to stand up here and tell you, with my bare face hanging out, that I think I was probably the most fortunate of a lot of people in AA. I came to AA at a time when I was late enough coming in that I could see this thing in motion and working. I had Exhibit A. I was in a position where I was in a position to see the intimate details and uh, and the and the uh, uh, the not only the the sharing of the experiences at the meetings, but in their homes, in their offices. And I saw this thing at first hand, and I knew that there was something working in their lives that was different. It was different. And I think this is what I'd like to tell you about tonight, is my interpretation of the spiritual concepts that I saw in those people, the real pioneers, the people who took these spiritual concepts and put them into their lives and began to work with these spiritual concepts without a track record. Without a track record. They banded together. They were a family. And in this family, there was the camaraderie and the sharing and the closeness of a real family. And as a result of that real family and the closeness and the sharing and the spiritual concepts that were embraced and the spiritual energy that shared it's gone on and on and on. And I think that probably at this particular time in my experience that I am more and more looking back and seeing the hand of God in this thing from the very beginning. To me, it is almost an illusion. At times, I wonder if, it's, if, if I'm here and you're here and we're here. I think we're here in spite of ourselves, really. So certainly the hand of God or someone directed us because left to our own devices and some of the experiences that I knew, including some of my own phobias and things that went on, we would not be here. Now I stood at the very spot that Bill, Bill uh, Wilson stood in the Mayflower Hotel when he was trying to make these telephone calls to find another alcoholic. And each time he made a call, he couldn't get any, anybody, and he was getting more discouraged, and he was despondent anyhow. And I stood in this very spot, and about 20 feet away is the telephones, and about 20 or 30 feet away is the cocktail bar, and the girls are giggling, and the glasses are tinkling. And all I can tell you is that the damn good thing was Bill Wilson instead of me. <laughs> but I think then the hand of God reached out and said, Bill, keep calling, keep calling. There was no logical reason for him to continue to do this except his need to share it with another alcoholic. And so we all know the results of this. And so into this fledgling cadre of these few people who got together came this beautiful fellowship for the first time perhaps in history that we had a group who embraced these concepts and put them into being with success with success. Now, I think that if I have DB, I may put it another way. I think if I properly look at my particular position at the moment and I look back and see the things that were done in my behalf and if I can find a way to articulate and to pass these things on to you, that is what I'm supposed to do. I have no credentials of any other kind except to stand here as a witness to the love and the wisdom and the caring and the sharing of those early people and the love of God Almighty. 
Other than that, all I can tell you is that for moment after moment and day after day, that we acquire weeks and months and so on of sobriety, but the disease may be progressive, but we get better progressively. And I do not hold with those people who feel as though that they have to hang on to their sobriety by their fingernails all the time. We read down here that there are people who have had a release from alcoholism and it is permanent. I know of all one man who resigned from Alcoholics Anonymous. And I talked to him last week. He's still alive. There's about five or six of these guys that I keep in touch with out of that original group in 49. This guy's name is Oscar Weiss, and he's a survivor. Oscar came in and he got drunk after a few months. And he was so uh, conscience-stricken that he wrote a formal legal instrument in which he set out the fact that AA was to be held harmless, that he had been given good information, that the group had done everything possible for him, and that he was not the kind of a candidate or had the kind of a character that they should spend any more time with. And he went on with this thing and he said, I want to resign. (laughs) So he took this legal instrument down to see Bob Smith and Bob read it. And he said, Oscar, I can't rule on this thing uh, individually. I'll have to talk to the elders. You go back to Cleveland, and we'll let you know. Forty-five years later, he ain't heard anything. <laughs> we have kind of an in-house story. I called him talking, and I said, Oscar, have you heard anything? He said, no, I haven't heard anything today. <laughs> so he's the only one I ever knew that officially resigned from AA. But the people that I'm talking about, I believe, to be spiritual giants. Spiritual giants. I was very well acquainted with the founders. More so with Bob, of course, because I believe that the AA came out of Akron, not New York, as some people think it did. And uh, I also had the good fortune to know most of the first 400, 500 people in AA. And my sponsor was the fourth man in AA. And I think Paul... And I hate to use this word guru, but Paul, sort of a, he was our spiritual guide. He was our leader. And Paul was a, was, was just a beautiful, beautiful man. And all of us were attracted to him. And he, he somehow in his beautiful, uh, humble manner was always in a position to be positive in all of his influences. And he was certainly, certainly great. And there's a lot of people in the beginning, the two people that none of us ever heard about. And they don't write books about these people. These were the guys that were in the trenches. These were the guys that were saving lives. These were the guys that were making 12-step calls. They weren't calling on the captains of industry and the great religious leaders for acceptance of AA. They weren't interested in education or a damn thing. They were saving lives. And we had 490 of them before they had one person in the East. And believe me, up to the time we had 2,000 people, 8 out of 10 people were recovered in AA of the first 2,000. Now, I admit that statistics are pretty sketchy, but that's a hell of a lot better than one out of 35. And so I think these spiritual concepts that we talk about, if we get back to these things, these basic elements, will save some lives. And one of the things my wife says that don't preach, I always do. <laughs> but I can say to every one of you people here, you are peculiarly equipped to save lives. That preacher can't do it. A lot of the doctors can't do it, but you can. You can save lives. And when you leave here, there's somebody out there that's looking for you. 
And there will come a time shortly when you'll be in a position to move in his behalf, and you will you will go through this beautiful experience of sponsorship and working with someone who will become a part of you. Now, if you will, let me give you my personal experience in this thing, because I think it's so damn important that we carry this message. Someone said the messenger isn't so important, it's the message. And I think if I have anything to give to you today, I would like to tell you this, that I think that I am standing here not because of any personal discoveries of my own, but because of the love and caring and sharing of those early people in my behalf that made it possible for me to stand up here tonight, and I hope that I can somehow articulate or convey to you the things that were given to me that we can pass it on, because this is our 50th year, and this is a year to pass it on. This is a year to pass it on. Now, I think to set this thing in motion or at this point in time, I was raised in a little German community. I came from an affluent home. I knew a great deal about the work ethics. I knew a great deal about the the uh, uh, the uh, the things that go on within the families. Uh, my family were uh, were people who, uh, uh, like all the old German families, uh, the work ethic. Uh, you paid your bills on the first, not the second. And I could go on and on with the, the fact that I was raised in a very, very loving home, and there was a great deal of respect and love. Now, <laughs> I guess I I cannot tell you that I came out of a good Christian home. I, I, I guess the old saw about the minister who said, every time I go to an AA meeting and you people get up, you say, I'm an alcoholic, and I came out of a good Christian home. He said, I'm beginning to believe it's a bad place to raise a kid in that Christian. <laughs> I guess he was a, the same minister that saw the kid and said, I've been watching you for the past two or three years, and he said, you've had a remarkable recovery in that AA thing. He said, you're just doing beautifully. The kid said, yeah. He said, you know, we'd like to have you join our church. The kid said, oh, Pastor, I can't do that. He said, why not? And he said, well, he said, you know, you have a lot of hypocrites in church. The minister said, don't you have any hypocrites in AA? And he said, yeah, but you can smell ours. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I was given every advantage that any youngster could possibly have. My folks supported me in anything I wanted to do. And as a kind of a kid about town, in the days before radio and television, things were sold by word of mouth. An automobile manufacturer gave me a, a high-performance roadster to run around town and to show off, and I also did some clothes modeling and photography. And I mention this because it kind of gave me a leg up. And I got through my high school and prep school, and in my early days, uh, uh, I had had a pretty good experience in knowing who I was and what I was. And I got along all right. I traveled in any kind of society. I knew that people had more or less, but it, it, it didn't penalize me any. I had no, I didn't feel superior or inferior or anything. I just functioned. And so I could say that I had the best of all worlds. Now this, uh, this athletic career that I was trying to build and I had thrown myself into my athletic career, I wanted to be a professional athlete. And I spent all of my waking hours in training and, uh, and uh, indulge in this uh, in this uh, 
activity of becoming this professional athlete. And all modesty aside, I had come to the attention of some coaches and some of the newspapers, and I had had some national attention. And so uh, I was kind of a kid around town, and it gave me a leg up. And so using this kind of special position I thought I had, I chose the university of my choice, the school of my choice, the fraternity of my choice, and so on. And I arrived on this campus in this high-performance roadster, a uh, pork pie hat, plus six knickers, a coonskin coat, and a ukulele. <laughs> and uh, so that was the way you did it, and I was Joe College and in keeping with the times. Now, shortly, I got a hold of my coaches, my fraternity brothers, the curriculum, and I decided on what courses I would take and what I wouldn't take and who went to labs and who didn't. And that's the reason I told someone tonight I'm a Ph.D., I'm a poor, helpless drunk. <laughs> because I made all these decisions, but nevertheless... They rolled out the red carpet, and uh, I took advantage of anything and everybody because I was interested in this coaching staff, the hell with the school. And so I threw myself into these, this athletic program. I loved it. The sports heroes of, my, of the day were my gods, and that's all I cared about. I, nothing else mattered. Now, NAA and all other clubs and so on, they have a sponsor. I have a sponsor in this fraternity. And he came to me and he said, Paul, you know, in this fraternity we got some jocks like you and we got some scholars, but we all have to be socially adept and we're going to launch you on your social program and there's a prom, you get the gown and the corsage and you put on your dress clothes and go to the prom. I passed the inspection line, picked up the little girl, went to the dance. Now at this dance they were doing something called the Charleston. You never saw anything like it in your life. It was like scrimmage at Notre Dame, I'll tell you. It was, it was real wild. And I got in this mess, and uh, I'm doing pretty good. I'm cutting a rug, as the cat says in those days. And uh, somewhere and somehow during this nonsense, someone introduced me to something called Mastika. Now, this is in Prohibition before most of your time. But what Mastika was was bathtub gin, and they put some anise in it to cut the burr off the juniper so you could drink it without vomiting. Good stuff that was in Prohibition. So I began to drink this stuff, and I got pretty loose. My feet got loose, my head got loose, and I was really moving around. And pretty soon the dance was over. We got in our cars, and we started out, and somewhere and somehow during that night I lost my virginity. <laughs> and what really happened was I blew the whole thing, my social standing, my virginity, and... Uh, and my abstinence, it all went down the drain. <laughs> now, what happened was very subtle, and it brought me to a moment, a moment of truth. The next morning I got up, and I had a hell of a hangover. I had never had one. Now, instead of asking to have my go up in the discipline room and get my butt beat around for my bizarre behavior, everybody was slapping me on the back. I was now... <laughs> For some reason, I have now become a man about town. I've been drunk, I've been to a dance, and I thought I had sexual intercourse, or I did whatever it was, and now I'm a, I'm a full-grown man. To me, there seemed to be some kind of a double standard. I had been programmed as a straight arrow. This was not my way of behaving. I was ashamed, and more than that, I was confused. I thought someone would take umbrage at this. I thought someone would say, this ain't the way you do this. 
And uh, I would somehow have to pay a price for this, uh, but nobody did. Now, the thing that happened to me at this prom, at this dance, was not so much that I got drunk, but the thing that tapped me on the shoulder that was so damn important to me, and a very subtle thing, was that these people were having fun. These people were free. They were, they were not only free, but uh, they, they just enjoyed themselves. And there didn't seem to be any restraints or constraints of any kind. And hell, I had never seen anything like this. I didn't know people had fun. I'd been used like a hunk of meat. They'd go out there and get your damn head knocked off. How many fingers are you all up? Rub it off. Uh, uh, that's all I could remember. And uh, I had been manipulated and maneuvered around by people that didn't give a damn about me. And here were these beautiful, exotic people. I don't have to tell you the decision was made real. I'm going with the high rollers. <laughs> I'm going with the people that have fun. I don't have to tell you that the collision course was there and the decision was made real fast. My family, the coaches, everybody, newspaper people, what the hell's going on? And I said, it's real simple to hell with you people. I'm going with the fun people. Now, in these Dutch families, they don't pick up the check for high rollers and fast laners, you know. And you got to go to work. So I went to work. And through my family's influence, I went to work for a very lovely, very nice company, a large international company. In those days, they were picking up tramp athletes and putting them into marketing and sales departments. And so I got in this company. And hell, within a matter of a few weeks, they found out that I was in there for keeps. I wasn't in there for some sojourn. This was my business career. And so they, somebody decided that, uh, that I was worthwhile to work with, so I got into training. I went back to school at night, and I was chasing around during the, during the night. And uh, to make a long story short, I began to apply myself in all three areas. I was chasing babes and doing business and trying to get back to uh, preparing myself for my business career. Now, in those days and during Prohibition, uh, there was no such thing as alcoholism. There was no such thing as functional alcoholics or problem drinkers or anything. Everybody drank. It was a way of life. Uh, in the offices, you pulled out the booze at 5 o'clock and you drank till you fell off the chair or rolled under the bed or something. But you drank your share. And you were known by the fact of whether you could do a day's work or how whether you could hold your booze. And by that time, I had learned how to drink stuff you wouldn't pour in a radiator. And I was now in training to learn how to drink, and I was doing it pretty fast. Now, my little friend this afternoon said that we have a way of gravitating towards a certain kind of type of people. And in this corporation and middle and upper management, there were some hard drinkers and high rollers and fast planers. And I gravitated towards them, and they, for some reason, began to think I was all right. And I could move a golf ball. I played some competitive golf, and uh, all of a sudden I found myself as a kind of a horse in the company's entertaining groups, and so I gravitated towards that thing, and I thought it was beautiful. I got in the national sales department, the marketing department, and now I was getting paid for getting drunk, and I was getting paid to play golf, and it wasn't bad, and the company paid the bills for the girls, and that was, it was nice, too. <laughs> so to make a long story short, I went into training for this new dimension in my life, and I loved it. I loved it. Now, about this time, and I was talking this afternoon with my friend, the war clouds were gathering. The industrial complex was in place. Our people in Europe were in trouble. 
And things began to go, and I was assigned to Washington in the War Production Authority. I was also given some operations up in Connecticut, and I was not really equipped to handle these things, except the manpower shortage and so on. So I, I took these things on, and as a kid, I didn't know things were hard. I, everything was easy as far as I was concerned. You just got drunk and played golf. And I took these responsibilities on, and for some reason, uh, best known to others, I suppose, I began to get away with it. Now, about this time, I had a call from the boss, the guy that ran my company. And he said, I want to meet you over in New York. I want to talk to you. And I said, fine. And I got over there. And I said, how are you? Jesus, he was about as happy as a wet noodle. And I said something. He said, I want to talk to you about you. And I said, what the hell about me? And he said, well, he said, you're not predictable. He said, I sent you down here in the East three years ago. He said, you don't test my judgment. I don't know what you're doing. And so on, so on, so on. And uh, I said, Howard, look at the P&L statement. He said, I'm not talking about your productivity. I'm talking about you. He said, we had a very nice job opening up in our European operations, and everybody approved you but me. I turned you down. And I said, well, you're a hell of a friend. He said, I'm not your friend. You don't have friends. You have acquaintances. And I said, what the hell do you mean? He said, well, look. He said, we operate on a basis of a teamwork. He said, I don't understand you. He said, you ought to be married. You ought to have a home. You ought to have some kids. You ought to have a mortgage. You ought to need your job. He said, you don't need anything. He said, we need you, and we're not going to have this. And I said, well, it's real simple. The Keeper syndrome was born. If you don't like it, screw it. And I turned around and walked out. Now, the man had... Put something in that gray matter. I wasn't sure he knew what the hell he was talking about, but I was concerned. So I went to see my spiritual advisor, a bartender by the name of Sparky. <laughs> and I said, Sparky, can you imagine that idiot telling me these things? And he said, he's right. I said, what? He said, he's right. Well, I said, hell, I don't want to get married. Who'd marry me? He said, don't worry about a thing. Be over here tomorrow night. And as a measure of my insanity, so help me God, this is true. I met this exotic creature from Europe the next evening, and uh, five days, seven days later, we were married. Now, this marriage was not exactly made in heaven, I can guarantee you. <laughs> she, <laughs> she married me to get her second papers to keep from being deported. And I thought maybe I could get a couple of kids and a mortgage out of this deal. <laughs> and we put it together... And that was about it. But nevertheless, I made a job at this thing, and so did she. And when I was in Washington, I was privy to a great deal of information about some people south of our borders that needed very heavy tonnages of refinery equipment and drilling equipment and pipe and so on. And uh, I went down to the Texas, and I got in touch with four or five plants down there and made an arm's length deal with them. And I began to underwrite some pretty heavy tonnages story at all. I began to make more money in a month than I'd ever made in a good year. Hell, I didn't know what to do with money. I hadn't been educated to handle money. My, my people were steel mongers and iron mongers and a loaf of bread was a loaf of bread, a ton of steel was a... I didn't know anything about money. And as it began to pile up, I wondered what the hell to do with it and I decided to spend it. So I went up to Connecticut and I picked up a country place. I went down to the yacht club and bought a nice cruiser. I went in an automobile company one day and I bought three luxury cars with a personal check. They thought I was with the mafia or something. <laughs> I joined all the country clubs and athletic clubs and I opened an office and I was in business. 
Now, this thing kept building and building and building. I knew something was wrong. And the reason I knew it was wrong was because I was beginning to attract some very sleazy people. For some reason, they began to come to me with schemes, how to take advantage of something and how to do, how to, anyhow, to make a long story short, I didn't like their schemes and I didn't like them. This was not for me. I had been, in school, I was looking for a place for Paul Keebler. I was still looking for a place for Paul Keebler, and I couldn't find it. Now, about this time, I found out that my wife had been under surveillance and was under indictment for, as a spy. <laughs> and I got the lawyers together, and I said, blow this thing out of the water and give me so much, and I'm gone. The Keebler syndrome, I just turned my back and walked away. Now, someone said today something about the descending spiral. And as I began to take this geographic or this tour cure, cure and as I began to drink at the clubs and the hotels, and pretty soon uh, I was drinking uh, in uh, the secondary places, and pretty soon it was uh, uh, I was getting worried about getting some mileage out of a buck. I had never in my life ever worried about money. I didn't know anything about it. I knew that you should have it. And if you didn't have it, it was tough. If you had it, it didn't mean anything. It was just a commodity. And so as I began to drink, and as I began to to keep myself going, I became very, very isolated. I cut every tie I ever had. I cut ties with my family, my parental family, my social friends, and pretty soon I was not a part of anything or anybody or any group. I was completely isolated. And as I began to move along, I got into some pretty, pretty, uh, 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 pretty, pretty squeamish situations at times. I got drunk tanks and I got before the magistrates. I remember one time they picked me up for screening. And I remember this little Hungarian psychologist was screening me and talking with me about my, how to manage my life and so on. And she got through and I said, if I had to live and think like you, I'd rather be drunk. And I meant that. If I had to manage and I had to do the things that it seemed like that the normal people did, there was no way I could do this. And when I look back, certainly this was true. Now, time went on in the last six months or eight months that followed. I, it's kind of hazy. But I found a joint underneath the railroad tracks in this village, in this town, and the, it, it, was, it was comfortable there. The environment was at least not hostile. The specialty of the house was Purple Death. That was the bottom side of the wineries. It had pulp in it. You could keep it down. It was very, very dry. And it had alcohol in it. And by that time, I'm drinking medicinally. Because if I don't drink and get some of this slop in me every four or five hours, I began to hallucinate. And I was getting paranoid. And I always drank at the end of the bar so I could see who was coming in. And I wanted to be sure that I could get out the back door or whatever it was. And I was acquiring and had this awful thing that most of us have gone through. I'm going to call it an impending doom. There was something I knew was going to happen to me, and I couldn't put my finger on it, but I knew it was bad. And physically I deteriorated, and mentally, and pretty soon I was beyond and reached that point, which I'm going to call a chronic, unmanageable, hopeless alcoholic. And there I was. Now, the moment of truth comes, I think, to people at that particular time. And I knew if I stayed there, I was going to die. And I knew if I left there, I was going to die. 
I sure in hell had no logical plan. I was not capable of thinking my way into anything. And I knew there was no help for me because my whole life had been built around every effort I made had turned to worms and crawled away. There was no reason why I thought that there was anybody or anything that I could go to and get assistance. Now, I'll say one thing for that subculture. The beat girls and the bartenders and the prostitutes and the people that hung out there, there was a great deal of compassion. And about every four hours, they'd get, we'd, we'd work out this deal. I, I'd, I'd, get, I'd get enough of this stuff in me to keep me going. And pretty soon, uh, the moment of truth, and I knew something had to happen. Now, I'm going to tell you this because I don't think Nick the Grape or anybody would give you five million to one that this would happen, but it did. For reasons I'll never understand, and I think the intercession, and I believe in the divine intervention of God. A life force of some, some kind came into my life, and I moved out of that damn place. And I was going up this street, ten below zero. I had no clothes, no money, no nothing. One foot in front of me, and I began to move. Now, logically, I don't know where I'm going, but I'm moving. Now, it seemed to me that I could see myself, and I could hear these things going on, and my hearing was acute, hallucinating, and so on. And I felt maybe this is a, this is the way you die. I thought maybe I'm dying. Now, I don't think I've ever been too afraid to die. I'm not today, but this, this thing was mysterious. It, it, it just absolutely, I was out of my being, but I kept moving up the street. Now, believe it or not, I walked into a hotel, and it wasn't, uh, it was a good second grade hotel, and the assistant manager saw me and put me in a room. Now, you can imagine how I looked and smelled. I hadn't been out of my linens for weeks, and many times I didn't know whether I'd been to the bathroom or not. And there was no way that I could uh, I could uh, uh, justify any, I had no money, no job, nothing. And he put me in this room. Now here's the part that I think is so mysterious. A couple of boys in Akron that had been in, in uh, Detroit were on their way back and had stopped to see the, the people in this hotel. And they were an in-law of this guy and he knew something about AA, even in those days. And he said, look, I got a guy over here in the room that needs help. And they said, no way, we don't do these things. He said, you go see him, he needs help. Now, I suppose in a matter of hours or minutes, I don't know how long, but in the door walked a couple of beautiful, bushy-tailed, bright-eyed guys, strangers. And they said, we hear that you are, are in trouble. And I said, hell, I'm not in trouble, I'm dying. <laughs> and they said, well, we want to talk to you about this. Uh, we think maybe we can help you. And I said, well, I don't know about that. Now, what happened is this. They began to share with me about their drinking experiences. I began to share my drinking experiences with them. And the amazing part was there was a point of lucidity and clarity that came to me. And I think it was because these people were not threatening. They were not talking down to me. They were talking with me. There was no longer any reason for a defensive bull. Uh, they didn't seem to be the least bit reticent about discussing their inability to drink and their drunkenness. And that, uh, I, just, I just intuitively knew that these guys were telling me the truth. And as we began to talk about this, and they began to share their experiences with me, 
they used to sneak in a little word every once in a while called alcoholism. Alcoholics Anonymous. And somehow we got around to what is this thing you call Alcoholics Anonymous, and there's a group of people in Akron who knew all about this disease, they called it, and that they could do something about it, provided that I would do what I was told, that I would deliver myself into their hands for their direction, and that I would give them a commitment. And I said, fellas, it sounds great, but I'm not like you. And they said, how come? And I said, I'm crazy and I'm a drunk. And they said, that's right, you are. But you are an alcoholic. And I said, what in the hell's the difference between a drunk and an alcoholic? And if I could put this in a bottle and sell it, I wish I could. They said, over a period of time, you are one of those people, one of the singular people that somehow, some way beyond our understanding have a predisposition for this disease called alcoholism and you have, over a period of time, done some irreparable damage to yourself physically. Not mentally, morally, physically. This physical addiction that you, this irreparable damage you have done is the root cause of the compulsion. This compulsion takes over your sanity and you cannot function. Your will is inoperative. And I thought about it, and I thought, well, what the hell? How many times I had said to myself, I ain't going to drink more than three drinks. I ain't going to drink today. I'm going to drink nothing but corn whiskey or whatever the hell it was. And sooner or later, something happened. And no matter what my intentions were, I could never bring it to fruition. Never. Everything I had tried to do at some time, booze had stepped in the way, and I'd fallen on my butt. I could never bring anything to fruition. I could not exercise my will. My life was unmanageable. Unmanageable. And they said to me, did you go to your high school counselor and tell you wanted to be a drunk? I said, hell no. They said, did you marry a woman and you embarrass your family and all this? I said, no. They said, why do you think you did that? I said, I don't know. And they said, that's right, you don't. You cannot exercise your will. Now, to me, I think this is my first real experience in my entire life was unqualified love. Unqualified love. These guys did this not expecting to be repaid. They didn't ask me if I belonged to the Masons or could I pay them back or what my bank account was. They didn't say anything. They said, come with us. We'll take your warts and all. And I did. And I went with them. They put me in a hotel down in the Akron area with four other guys of my vintage. <laughs> And they said, we want you to do one thing, and we discussed it tonight at the table. I wish I could emphasize this as a message of nothing else to tell you today. They said, we want you to do one thing only. We have a system called HALT, hunger, anger, lonely, tired. This will be your criteria for your behavior for the next four or five months, and we want you to recover under these conditions. They gave me some peraldehyde and rye for two or three days and filled me up full of tomato juice and all kinds of juices and... Uh, to be a candid with you, I was uh, working at both ends pretty good, but I was getting well. And so I got through the detox situation without convulsions and without any damage that I knew. But the recovery process, physical and mental recovery, was going to be tough. Now, I'm going to make a statement. I think I can back it up. This is not controversial. 80% of our relapses is because those people of us who, are dr who have been drunk, who have been found sobriety and maintained sobriety, ignore or violate this system. Hunger, anger, lonely, tired.
And when we do, we have these dry drunks. And when we have dry drunks, our, our emotional tolerance is low and we become irritated. We're not only sane under those conditions. And sometimes we trigger the compulsion. We find ourselves drunk again. And I saw evidences of this. And I decided that I would do what the boys told me. At the end of four months, I was dry. I had not had any real bad recovery. As a matter of fact, I was feeling pretty good mentally and physically. I was wound so tight I couldn't find my behind with both hands in back of me. I just could not function. I said this before, I couldn't buy a newspaper without a fist fight. It was just, I was just awfully, awfully tight. And I knew the moment of truth had come. I went down to the meeting that night and I got a hold of Paul Stanley, who was to be my sponsor, this beautiful man I told you about. And I said, Paul, I love all you people and you've been beautiful and, and, and so on, but like Oscar Weiss, I said, I, I don't think I'm a candidate for this. I don't think I have the kind of care. I don't, you know. He said, what the hell's the matter? And I said, I ain't going to make this thing. And he said, why not? And I said, everybody's smart. You and Bob Smith and Gene Howard and Dodson and all, you talk about the philosophy and theology and the William James uh, religious experiences and the Bible and the Sermon on the Mount. And I said, hell, I'm just an illiterate al alcoholic and half-assed mechanical engineer. I don't know anything about these things. He said, that's good. You don't have to unlearn anything. Now, I'm not going to denigrate people who have credentials. All I'm saying was that he told me that if I would put myself into his hands as a sponsor, and that if I was willing to set my prejudices, my preconceived ideas aside, I too could get well. So I said, Paul, I'll do anything you want me to. And he said, I am going to take you on a series of spiritual experiences. The steps between the third and the ninth. Those steps are designed for your personal recovery. For a regeneration. Spiritual awakening, if you will. And he said, each one of these steps overlaps into the next. And there is a spiritual momentum that will build. And that you will one time come to understand that you don't have to drink anymore. The compulsion will be gone. You'll have emotional stability. You'll be able to use your talents and your mind, and you will be recovered. We don't like that word recovered. I am a recovered alcoholic. I'm 12 steps away from my last drink, and I prefer to think that I am recovered. And so I went into the process of recovering with Paul, and he said, we will now get the third step. And he said, you don't, and I think that sets it on the big book. We don't become members of AA until we take the third step. It says, if this is what you want, you are now ready for the third step. And I was ready, but I didn't know what the third step was. And he said, you're ready for the third step. And I said, fine, I read it. Oh, he said, we got a lot of talking to do about that. And he took me through the spiritual context of that step. And he said, the operative word is decision. And you will come down to the meeting tonight on your hands and on your knees, and you will say this third step prayer in front of the group. And I said, you're crazy. Ain't no way I'm going to do that. And he said, well, take your drink. And I said, I'll do it. <laughs> so I went down that night, and I did. I got down. I knelt, and I said the third step prayer. I deliver myself into your will and your care that I may remove the bondage of self that I may do your will. Nobody laughs. And when I got up, I had no great feelings of euphoria or, or anything that I could, could say, but there was one thing that did go on.
And I look back and I see the hand of God in this thing at that time. I now was a part of the group. I now was a part of the group. And I said, Paul, what about this will? When am I going to see God and when am I going to know what his will is? And he said, you've got a long, long way to go. But he said, you will get well and you will do this. And he said, when you made this decision, the decision is that you remove and surrender all the things that stand in the way between you and God and your fellow man. And I said, how do I surrender? He said, he said the rest of the steps will lead you to this. And so he said, we're going to take a look at who you are. And he said, if you are who the sum total of your experiences, your education, what you think, and what your philosophy, we are not interested. It's who you are and what you've done. And he said, I want you to make a list of all of the things that are on your conscience, the things that you've done that you're ashamed of, and the things you should have done that you didn't do. Oh, a double barrel deal. And so I did this. And I went out to St. Louis, and I found a kid that had caught me in California, and I said, Rowdy, I need about 15 minutes of your time. <laughs> I, I got a personal problem I want to discuss. And four hours later, I'm pouring it on this guy. I came up with 37 institutions, people, and places, and things in my four step. And I hear people say, well, I never hurt anybody but myself. I don't know what the hell kind of alcoholics they are, but I'll tell you. The alcoholics I know, and the kind of an alcoholic I was, was a destructive son of a bitch. And I was ashamed of the way I had behaved the rest of my life. And I was looking for restitution, and I wanted relief. And while I went through this fourth and fifth step, and it did give me relief, and I went back to Paul, and I told him about it, and he said, did you surrender your wrongs to God when you admitted to another human being? And I said, of course. He said, that's fine. But he said, look at the shortcomings and defects, because my fourth step had generated all the information I needed for my wrongs, for my shortcomings, my defects, the amendment program, and the whole thing was right there in the fourth step. I didn't have to speculate at all. And I said, Paul, how am I going to get rid of the shortcomings and defects? And he said, you're going to hand that over to God? And I said, my goodness, how do I know that this thing is going to work? And he said, there's a whole bunch of things that you have to do. And he said, I want you to remember one thing. He said, you have been sober. Where did you get this sobriety? Did you bring it with you? I said, no. He said, God's demonstrated his love for you because you got sober through the spiritual energy and the gift from God. And he said, now you've got to earn his will. You've got to earn God's grace. And those shortcomings and defects, you get down on your knees again and you ask God to take that too. Because if you try to deal with these things from your own viewpoint, and it's been said before by other speakers here, you become even more self-centered. Self-centered. I was talking about his shortcomings and defects addictions. Christ, we all have addictions. Addicted to food, cigarettes, mood-altering women, you name it. We all got it. These, these kids come to us today, I'm polyaddicted. What the hell does that mean? Polyaddicted. I'm an alcoholic and something else and something else and something else. My problem is that I'm an alcoholic. In the printing of our first book, it talked about drunkards, dipsos, ex-drunkards, and drunkenness. And somebody thought we ought to clean it up. So the next edition came out and called us alcoholics. Now they want to tell me I'm a chemical dependent. Would you believe that? What the hell is a chemical dependent? Everything is chemical. My primary problem is I'm an alcoholic. And if I address myself to that, in, in accordance with these steps, there will be a time when I can do, deal with these secondary addictions. 
not my baby to my satisfaction, but if I can't go to I can find special help. And so these shortcomings and defects were something. And he said, you turn them over to God and you ask God to relieve you of them. And the way you get rid of them is you make a list and you go out and make restitutions and amends. Now, I think this part of the program was the most dramatic and certainly was the most uh, amazing experience I ever think I had in my life. I must have traveled 20,000 miles. It took me two and a half years to go through the eighth and ninth step. I went to see people I hated. I went to see people that I that I, I couldn't stand. And I went to see people who hated me. And I could go on and on with these stories. And every time I addressed and went in to see one of these people, I asked God to give me the help, the power to be honest, to be unselfish, and to be pure in my intentions, and to do this thing in a way that was supposed to be done. And I did. And in almost every case, I was received in kind. And some of the people that I hated turned out to be friends of mine. And I could tell you that even the IRS sat down and listened to me. And that's, that's, that's some function, I'll tell you. But when I got through with this amendment program and restitution, I was for the first time in my life completely clean. I had removed, at least at the conscious level, and perhaps a lot of the things that I had suppressed, the anger and the hate and the envy that I had had for people, places, and things. I didn't like the government. I didn't like churches. I didn't like institutions. I didn't like the civil laws. I didn't like anything. And I hated everything and everybody, and that anger and that hate began to melt. Love. Unselfishness. And as I began to move back into the mainstream, these things began to mark. And at the end of that time, I think I could say that to the best of my ability, I had removed and surrendered every obstacle between God and my fellow man. I now knew what that third step said. The decision to turn my will and life over to the care of God. And I was getting the benefits and I was enjoying those promises. In the meantime, I had met this lady that I'm now married to in AA. And I guess a marriage of 35 years and 86 years of sobriety ain't bad, is it? Well, anyhow, I had met her. And I guess that's kind of a, kind of an unusual story in a way. We were kids in this thing together. And it seemed like people said, Paul, take Kay, or Kay, take Paul, and we got, to, we got to be a habit. And I began to think about we instead of I or her. And pretty soon, I guess we were compatible, I guess is the word. I had never had a platonic relationship with a woman. Never. And yet, this thing went on and on, and it was the kind of thing that uh, kind of grew and it was a very subtle thing. And the next thing you know, I had to go back east to go to work, and I wanted to do some things. It suddenly occurred to me that, God, I didn't want to be without this woman. And it seemed that she felt the same way. So we got married and then fell in love and had a family. <laughs> so whatever it was, that was the way it worked. And so as it went along, and I think I returned to work and I joined the mainstream, and the industry that had blackballed me opened up its doors. Some of the banks that I had been a foul of began to... To make a long story short, all of the pieces fell into place. And life was beautiful. Life was really beautiful. Now, I think truth... I must tell you this. At the end of about five years, 
I was so completely immersed and I was overwhelmed with my newly acquired business, social, my community affairs, and there wasn't enough time in the day. I was sober and I was doing a hell of a job of living. When people call me and ask me to talk, I ask them if they could find someone else that wasn't so busy. I found that I could not sponsor people unless I thought I could give them full time. And frankly, to be honest with you, I thought I had paid my dues. But I knew something was missing. And I knew it was missing to the standpoint that I began to invite and to somehow find hostility and antagonism. I went down to the plant and people would scatter like a covey of quail. And I was a headhunter, and at times if things weren't going the way I thought, I, my, my uh, personality was anything but lovable. Things were kind of tight. And when I went I said, okay, something's the matter, and she said, it sure is. And I said, what the hell do you think it is? And she said, it's about time you got back into AA. And I said, my God, I've run all over the world, I've sponsored, I've done this. She said, that isn't what we're talking about. You and I were introduced to and raised in a system that is the pathway to a higher understanding, the 10th, the 11th, and the 12th step. There's no reason to go back and go through those steps time after time and stirring them up. Take a look at your daily activities and what was happening. I was using the 10th step when I got in trouble. I was using the 11th step and the 12th step separately and independently. But I had not interlaced or interwoven those things together into a daily program. And she said, we take our 10-step inventory, do it, I do it at night because I pick up a half a day that way. But if I do it at night and I began to take my inventory, not for my shortcomings and defects, the hell with it, the things I could have done and didn't do, the opportunities I had to correct a situation and I didn't do it, and I had a chance to be a little more kinder and tolerant and... Uh, let's say, concerned about someone else, and I didn't do it. I began to drive my car like an idiot, and I could go on and on and on. Very subtle things. I wasn't drinking, but there was a descending spiral spiritually. And I began to take that 10th step, the 11th step, and the 12th step. And when I looked at the times during the day that the opportunities were there to practice these principles of what? Of honesty, unselfishness, purity and love. And I walked away from these things. I felt that staying out of trouble was protecting my anonymity and protecting my sobriety and protecting it. And it wasn't that at all. I wasn't on this pathway to a higher understanding. I wasn't improving my conscious contact with God. I was in a holding pattern. Somebody calls it maintenance. Who the hell is interested in maintenance? Improving my conscious contact with God. And when I began to take a look at this daily inventory of the opportunities that I had, minute by minute, and it became very obvious to me that there was something that was holding me back. And my wife suggested that this disease called apathy had a companion called complacency. And apathy and complacency had put me in a stranglehold, and I was damn near on my way to disaster. And so what does it say in our prayers and meditation? We ask God to remove those things or to give us whatever is necessary to deal with these things. And so I prayed for power and knowledge of his will that I could find the courage and to practice the principles of honesty, unselfishness, purity, and love. Why? 
because I found out that trying to deal with life and other people from your own viewpoint is not enough. And no amount of information it says is enough. And no matter what we say on how many books you, you buy about how to, you can buy a book on anything they tell me. Buy a book on make a million dollars, how to win friends, influence people. How to make love standing up in a hammock if you want it. But the opportunities were there. But something was in the way. And to ask for God's courage and knowledge of his will. Because unless I accepted a set of ideals and a set of moral standards over and beyond my own will, I'm a dead stinking fish. And I have people come out to my house. I had a guy come out there the other day, 17 years in this thing. He suffers depressions and all kinds of things. And I love this guy. We sat down and talked, and I said, Jim, what about your fourth and fifth step? Well, he said, I got a couple of ex-wives and so on. I said, what about the amendments? See, all of that stuff festers. It festers. I had people come out. A kid came out the other day and wanted to get a divorce. And I said, what the hell's the matter? Well, Sally won't do this, and I don't do it. I said, do you love her? He said, yeah. I said, why don't you love the hell out of her? You don't have to be repaid for loving somebody. If you do, you, you don't know anything about love. And so love is this act. It's not something we think. It's not something we read. It's something we do. And I don't think, I think the epitome of love is when we take this message out to a suffering alcoholic and say, look, ain't nothing wrong with you. You're an alcoholic. You've got a disease. You are guiltless of being an alcoholic and of the things you did. You're responsible, but you don't have to go through life with this. We'll show you how you can get rid of this guilt. We'll show you how you can become whole. We'll show you that there is a system that you can use that is over and beyond your own kin, your own devices, that will put you on a road to a higher understanding. And that's what this way doctor told Roland. You have... A disease that equates for oneness. Paul Stanley told me this. He said, I think every alcoholic I've ever known intimately has an overwhelming, deep-seated need and a desire for a union with God, and he doesn't know it. All my life I had been searching for something. The new car, the new girl, the new job. And when I got there, there wasn't there. What the hell was I looking for? I was looking for this oneness. I was looking for this union. I was looking for this pathway to a higher understanding. And one of the beautiful things about being an alcoholic, sure we have a low emotional threshold. Certainly our needs are greater than those idiots out there, earth people, whoever they are. All I know is that our needs are great, but so are the results, and so are the benefits, and so is the beautiful experience in living with sobriety. And I think if I have nothing else to say to you tonight but this, I think that the joy of sobriety and the joy of living and the joy of giving is coming to know that God is our truly a God of love. And it seems to me that he loves us for what he is, not for what we are. And for that I'm very, very happy about. Because if he had to love us, love us for what we are... <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, but I don't think he could do that because I've never felt that I was in a position that had the talents and had the, had the understanding of the type and kind of thing that Oscar talked about, that he didn't think that he was the kind of a person that had the character that would qualify for this fellowship. 
And those of us that have gone through this spiritual awakening, this spiritual regeneration, we wouldn't trade this for anything. I don't know. I couldn't conceive of a life without AA. I just couldn't do it. I just don't understand how all these years that this thing was at my fingertip, that somehow I could have found this beautiful way of life on my own. It certainly had to be through a life force, or it had to be at the intercession of God, or some positive influence that brought me here tonight. And so all I can say is that I stand here in a testament of the wisdom and the love and the caring and sharing of this fellowship. Now, I'd like to close the night with a prayer, and I know that some of you have heard this, all of us, but I somehow think it's the epitome of all the things that I've been trying to put together here. And it's a serenity prayer. And it says, and I offer it to you this way, God grant us the serenity to accept the things we cannot change, courage to change the things we can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Living one moment at a time, enjoying one day at a time, accepting hardship as a pathway to peace, trusting he will take this world as it is, not as I would have it, and if I surrender to his will, he will make all things right, that I may be happy, reasonably happy in this life, and supremely happy with him in the next. Thank you.